Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Hang on a second here, folks. That's right, hang on a second. Michael Colligan, co-host of Starving for Darkness here. Just to tell you real quick before we get into the conversation, which is super important for you to hear, that you need to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, especially if you're a contractor or a distributor, Greg Eric. That's right. And they're coming out with a new exterior line of product, or they have come out with it, and they're going to continue to add to it, and they're dedicated to making dark sky friendly lighting. Uh, and potentially dark sky compliant as we go. For now, though, they do have a dark sky full cutoff wall pack, a variety of wattages, Kelvin temperatures, and a precision crafted optical lens that's ideal for increased fixture spacing and uniformity. So less lighting fixtures needed because it, it can provide more light out of the one fixture. So check that out. Go to keystonetech.com. That's right. Hold on. Here comes Starving for Darkness. But before, K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, and I'm so pleased to have Douglas Arion here today as a guest. Douglas Arion, PhD, is the founder and director of Mountains of Stars, a public science outreach and education program that engages the public with environmental awareness from a cosmic perspective. He is also Professor Emeritus of Physics and Astronomy at Carthage College and has spent nearly four decades as an innovator and inventor building things that aren't as expected. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And we start every episode with the same request. Would you please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe? Oh my God, there are so many, but um, uh, one that's relatively recent, um, I had the opportunity to do some work in South Africa and I got up to the Karoo Desert up near SALT, their large telescope. And the sky there is mind boggling because it's actually truly dark, um, which you don't really get to experience pretty much anywhere uh, anymore. Um, and um, when I made the trip, knowing I was going to be working down there, I was actually doing some work in Johannesburg and got to travel up there. Um, I had prepped for it because, of course, all the constellations are going to be different and the southern sky and all of this. And I brought binoculars with them. I hope get to seven tuck and so on. And I looked up and the Magellanic clouds were as bright as a full moon is up here in the Northern Hemisphere. It was like, oh my God, and grabbed the binoculars and started looking at things. It's just, it's incredible. So yes, you, you can have those experiences, but you have to go to some pretty special places, but it, it, it's amazing. That, that was, that's, that's the best of the best in my experience so far. Wow, so you went all the way to South Africa and you felt that incredible darkness to be able to see yeah. the Magellanic clouds. That's amazing. And so you are the founder of Mountains of Stars. 
Can you talk about the work that you do with this organization and what your overall mission is? Sure. Um, I, I started this program because um, I'm, I'm very unhappy with the way people treat the world and the environment. The fact that people think that they're better and more important than everything else and everything else is just there to be taken and, and used. And Listeners, you is, can't it, see, but I just rolled my eyes in complete agreement. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> uh, the, the thing is, if you understand anything about astronomy, if you looked at the stars, if you understand how things work and where they come from, you really can't possibly think that way uh, when you recognize, you know, you think that things in space are big, but the space between things is enormously bigger. You know, we're not going to easily leap to the next planet or leap to the next star. Um, and uh, so... Um, so firstly, beginning with that feeling that, you know, astronomy is a way to connect with our existence and to change attitudes. Um, and the second thing is everybody loves astronomy. Uh, nobody doesn't like astronomy. Everybody loves Hubble pictures. So it's a way to engage with the public. So if you go out there and you say, let me teach you about photosynthesis and why it's important, everybody glazes over or walks away. If you go, Look at these stars. Look at all the colors of stars. Wow, isn't that amazing? You know, the color of the sun is like really important to our life here. Let's talk about that. They're like, wow, that's cool. And so you have an in, a way to talk to people. So those were sort of the motivating factors to really try to get people connected with the environment and to change their view of where they fit in. And astronomy is, is the subject that covers everything and engages people. So... Um, we launched the program in 2012, spent a couple of years getting it set up and funded. Um, and uh, we, we do a number of things. We do all sorts of public programs. We engage undergraduate physics and astronomy students. We teach them science communication skills and have them work with the public. So they're the next generation of scientists. But let us reach big group. We're partnered with the Appalachian Mountain Club, which is the country's oldest outdoor conservation recreation uh, an education organization, uh, which gives us a conduit to many, many people. And we've now built Dark Skies Preservation into everything they're doing. It's been a long effort to get the environmental community to take on Dark Skies Preservation. So we're, we're getting there with that. Uh, in fact, we just created the first international dark sky park in New England with them. Where um, is that? That's in northern Maine. Um, it surrounds what's called the 100-mile wilderness area, but there are beautiful camps and lodges and cabins, um, trail systems. The AT goes through it. It's a wonderful area, but it's now an international dark sky park. And we have lots of telescopes and gear up there, uh, so it, it, it's a great place to go. And it, by the way, it is dark up there. Not quite the crude desert dark, but very dark. Um, so... Um, yeah, we, we do everything we can to connect with the public and do programs and activities that link this environmental message with astronomy. I think it's interesting that you, it seems like you're coming at it from an overall climate change perspective and that astronomy is what you're offering as a gateway <laughs> um, to reduce our arrogance. Um, but it's that it seems like your perspective is not just dark sky focused. Um, but that the dark sky is your sort of gateway drug to becoming more in balance and maybe more humble. Would you say that's true? I, I think I think it's a, a good way to look at it. We want to to get people, as we said, sort of off their pedestal 
thinking about everything around them, everything in the environment around them. And obviously dark skies is, is an important component of that, right? And, and not particularly because it lets you see stars. That's really the symptom of the problem. The real problem is you have too much light and that too much light burns electricity, it's the whole thing uh, to have excess light. So it, it, it's an easy connection. I mean, the, the pathways from getting people started with this into all these different environmental areas and dark skies being an important part of that. You mentioned that you had a long effort with the environmental community to open up to the dark sky issue. So I often talk how light pollution is actually a very counterintuitive problem. Um, that people don't, I mean, the allure is light. We're attracted to light, just like moths are. So did you find that there, and that there's a gateway to understand it, that when you talk about light pollution, you think of it as a nuisance, but it's far more grave than that. And so did you have to kind of get over that hump with very environmentally minded people as well? Yeah, I mean, all, all folks, um, it, it, it takes some time because Unfortunately, the impacts of light pollution aren't well known. And as you pointed out, on the flip side is there's this assumption that to be safe, you need a lot of light. Um, and so you put those two things together and, and you do have a considerable initial barrier to entry. But as we bring more information to people, um, they recognize it. I, you know, I do workshops and presentations on this constantly. In fact, it, it's always mentioned in everything we do, whatever topic we're covering, we always get dark skies into it. Um, and invariably, there are people in the group who go, yeah, you know, there's this nasty neighbor's light that shines into my house. Or somebody says, oh, those street lights really drive us crazy. Or, you know, and the lights, pardon the pun, the lights start going on in their heads <laughs> that like, oh, this is an issue, this affects me. But then, you know, to talk about all of these other aspects of it, um, you know, the fact that uh, it reduces pollination by up to 60% if you have light polluted areas, that over a billion birds die each year trying to migrate, that Americans just in this country spend $3 billion a year in electricity cost to make light that goes up and mm -hmm. creates problems, that it increases the risks of breast, prostate, and I, the latest I've heard is perhaps thyroid cancer, it affects adolescent development. I mean you get this information in front of people and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess this really is a problem. And you go, oh, by the way, and if you make the improvements, you save money. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. What do I need to do? Um, so th those are all things that, that, that get there, but it takes education to get people to understand all of these other aspects. It's not, you know, it, it's not an astronomy problem. In fact, um, at the American Astronomical Society one year at our session on this. And by the way, astronomers pay very little attention to this. The dark sky sessions at the AAS meeting don't draw large crowds. I wish they did. Um, but I got up and was kind of That's pounding on the desk and saying, this is not an astronomy problem. This is an environment problem. How many of you mm -hmm. have gone on your campus and talked to the environmental studies department, have talked to the geography department, have talked to the urban studies department, have talked to the architecture department? and explain to them these other aspects. Because otherwise, when you talk to somebody, they say, well, you're an astronomer, of course you want the sky dark. You, you want me to turn off the lights so you can see the stars. It's like, no, but I'll tell you, if we solve these other problems, yeah, the stars are gonna come back. 
but we're not doing it for that. In fact, I've argued that, that basically our community needs to get out of the business and turn it into an environmental business. I would so agree. So that's what we've been pushing for. Whole, I, I often have said that the stars are not enough to get people to turn the lights out because they no longer miss them. You know, and that's why we start every show with the question, tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe, because this is an experience that is totally robbed from the nightly pleasures of humankind. We no longer have that giant leap of perspective that comes with seeing that vastness each and every night. And so the goal of that question to frame the show is to give people that that memory somewhere back inside of them to feel that loss. But I know full well that it is not enough um, to turn the tides. And that's why I'm so thankful for voices like yours, because it really is an outreach effort to break through these barriers, which people don't understand. You're right. The astronomers, they don't even show up to these lectures, you're saying. And yet they're the ones that almost feel it in their the loss of their, their field, their work the most. Um, but the issue is wildlife. 100% for me, that's what I've always concentrated on, is that we are creating cascades of changes throughout our ecosystem that we will have no understanding of how this will impact our environment. And without wildlife, there's no humankind. So that's the that's the thing that we need to really get out there and educate about. I'm so thankful that, that you are doing that work because we absolutely need more voices. And let me bring up something that actually happened to me yesterday on my Instagram. Um, <laughs> someone uh, said to me on one of the comments of my post, they said, yeah, but, you know, light pollution is increasing every year. You know, no matter how much we do, it always is getting worse. And do you really believe that we can get the stars back? And my answer was, I absolutely believe we can get the stars back. I absolutely believe we can repair the climate and the, the planet. I have no doubt it's within us. And I just wanted to get your, I, I feel like I know your answer, but I want to hear your feelings about this. Is it within us to do this, to get the stars back? It is. It's going to be a long haul. Um, it's a challenge for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so let me, let me hit a couple of aspects of that, 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 may or may not be useful here. Firstly, when we approach people, um, you're right, no, nobody's going to make an effort to get the stars back, just as nobody made an effort to save the rainforest until we explained that if you don't save the rainforest, the oxygen goes away and you die. Then people care about it. Um, people don't worry about cleaning up water until they realize that that water is what they need to drink. And then the big thing is when it affects your kids. So. Um, the most effective things we've found in bringing dark skies information to people are the health and safety effects, not the, not the effects on the natural world part. Yes, they care about that, but they're not going to change the lights on their house because foxes are being driven away. But if you go, hey, the lights on your house are affecting the health of your children, 
the lights on the streets are making it more dangerous for your kids to cross the street because of glare in a driver's eyes. Oh, oh okay. No, I care about that. So you have to find the things that are really going to resonate with people. And yes, there will be some people who want to bring the stores back. There will be some people who want to see wildlife around their homes. But the things that really affect people and get them to do something about lighting are health and safety. That's what people care about. Yes. Um, for, for, and, and the economics. Um, so I, we found that that's the great connection. One of the long-term problems that we have now is the fact that so many municipalities have already made LED light changes and done it badly, um, mostly because of what they're being given to use. It's not because they're stupid. It's that <laughs> this is what the power companies offer. And so they put in 4,000K or even 3,000K lights have way too much blue in them and the fixtures generally are glary. And usually have too many street lights. Street lights by themselves are bad. You don't really need them, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> but after that investment's made, we'll be able to go back and fix that again. They're going to go, we just did this. We're not going to do this for a while. The next, okay, next time we have to replace a light, maybe we'll put in a 2000 or 2200K shielded fixture. But these things last a long time. It's 10, 15, 20 years before we're going yeah. to see it. So we, 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 we not only we miss the boat, we miss the pier, we miss the whole harbor of, of, of addressing this, that when the LED technologies came in, if we could have had a much bigger effect on what got installed, we'd be in much better shape. So it's going to be, it, it's going to be a longer haul because of that. So I, I, I'm sorry to say that's bad news. But at least more people who know about it are now like, oh, we, we, can, we can do this. Admittedly, light pollution as a whole, the basic statistics is municipal lighting is about half of it, commercial lighting is about half of it. We can still work on the commercial lighting side. Signage, parking lots, building illumination, those can still be worked on. Mm -hmm. Um, so we can, and, and different groups care. Um, next month, I'm a keynote speaker at a conference. It's ACRV, the Association of Campground and RVs or something like that. And you're like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Well, they're interested in drawing customers because of the sky and the natural environment. And I'm going to be telling them about, you know, how to build that as a business. But then I'm going to push them and say, you need to change the lighting at your facility because it's actually attracting insects, which your customers don't like, and driving away the moose, deer, and, and bears that your customers do like. Hey, if you change your lighting, this will be a, a marketing advantage to you. So again, that's the hook to get a group to make a change that they should make anyway, but they don't understand it. But if you say, hey, this is a way to build your business, they'll improve it. So. I, I apologize for being long-winded, but but these these no. to me are the directions of how we're actually going to get there. Is you have to go to each organization, each group, each population, and go, okay, let me show you why you should make this change, and then help them do that. On the flip side, one thing that's very difficult um, is for consumers, whether it's individuals or businesses, to find good light fixtures because the guidance out there is very poor and what's commercially available is very poor. Um, I challenge you to go to Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards, 
your local big box store and look at the exterior lighting. Almost all of it's bad. In fact, I build that into my presentations. Oh, yeah. I have a picture of, of all the fixtures that are available and of like 30 or 40 fixtures that are up there, there are four that actually meet dark sky standards. And that assumes that you put the photo. right bulb in it. Yeah, I have a photo from a trip to Home Depot with an anchor, uh, an aisle anchor. You know, at the end of the aisle, they are selling you something special. And it says, brighter lights, easy install. And I was like, yep, that's the heart of the problem <laughs> right there. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, my analogy yeah. is if you go into a supermarket to buy food and, and all the shelves are full of um, ding-dongs and ho-hos and ice cream and slabs of bacon and beer and somewhere there there's a little box of apples and you're supposed to know that you're going to supposed to ignore all this to find a little box of apples that that's actually good for you it, it's not mm -hmm. the consumer's fault if they walk in and they're like i'm hungry oh oh twinkies and a beer and off i go um and and that's really the same thing right uh you go into the store and you're like oh i need a light fixture hmm, that one's on sale looks kind of pretty goes on the house and yet it's going to be counterproductive. And not only is it not going to, not only is it going to hurt the environment, it's going to make their house less safe by putting glare out and shadows and all of that. So um, yeah, we have to work on all of that. I think that's a great analogy about the food. I think that's a really great analogy to explain that it isn't really the consumer fault and consumer's fault. And also it is simply, uh, living things are attracted to light. I mean, that's, we, we see that with insects and humans. So it's built in within us. Um, but I always say, you know, they used to um, suggest, doctors suggested that smoking was okay from time to time in the 1950s. And now it's common knowledge. So we can create that education. Oh, absolutely. But, but remember, people still smoke. And, you know, we've, we've known it was bad. We we're absolutely sure it was bad, let's say, worst case, starting in the 70s, right? When, when the, the commercials were pulled, promotions were pulled, they took it off the back of sports cars, you know, race cars and all that stuff, 70s. Mm -hmm. um, that's about, you know, <laughs> think about anybody who was a teenager in the 70s and the 80s. Okay, they're the ones who were kind of absolved because they picked it up before we knew it was really bad. But there are lots of people who are a lot younger than that, and they're smoking. Um, so it tells you that even though you can point out something is bad for you, um, oh, and you can stop, it will get better, it will save you money, isn't enough to get people to change their behaviors. Because if they, if it yeah. was, nobody would smoke anymore, right? There would be no smoking. But I would, I would say, though, on the whole, it's reduced significantly because of the education. And even if we were to just address all of the light that were the $3 billion of uplighting to the sky that we're losing, that would make such a massive difference. There's so much low Absolutely. hanging fruit to get control over with the lighting pollution that it's, there is so much gain to get back. Um, and I, I also, I totally think that the, the work is to incentivize humans as much as possible. I often talk about it from a mindfulness perspective. And I, I think it's really interesting, though, that uh, how much technology and art change our perspective. So when you were talking before about the installation of the first round of LEDs that were very blue, they were often 5,000K, and it was all about mm -hmm. lumens per watt back then. 
and unknowingly we created an entirely different environmental disaster with light pollution. And so what's really funny though is that here we are, we're coming out of this pandemic, hopefully fingers crossed, and we have all been trapped inside pushing buttons, driving each other crazy with if I send an email, then someone has to receive it and respond to it. So we're on this hamster wheel that went even faster because we couldn't uh, do anything else but create digital content for connection. So there is actually a dire need for darkness from a mindfulness perspective. And I think that that can actually be harnessed um, in a new way that hasn't been utilized because I think we're at the stage where we've had you know, a good 15, 20 years with iPhones and they are always with us. And that I think that actually some kind of separation from iPhones and uh, light driven devices actually could be a major incentive um, to bring people back to a better sense of balance and to educate about light pollution. And I just think it's very interesting that as times change, you know, we started actually thinking we were saving energy and we created light pollution as a major problem. And now we, we have thinking digital communication saves on paper and all these things. And now we're driving our own heads crazy. So there's, there's almost new bits to work with in terms of educating about this. And so, you know, jumping into the work that you do with education, so you actually have more than 67,000 members of the public that have participated. And um, you also have 300 students and nature guides and educators in science communication. Can you talk about your interactions with the public and what kind of sparks you see? Because I truly believe that if we can get past this tipping point of awareness, actually the star we could get the stars back by 2030 i totally believe it that would be great um so um we we have offered a variety a whole variety of programs and of course this last two years has been a disaster for doing programs you know certainly in in 20 basically everything was closed. All, all the lodges were closed, the hotels were closed, the libraries were closed, the schools were closed. So we got very little done. Um, and with the colleges being closed, we didn't have our college students participating last year. And even this past summer, we didn't either because last winter, when you have to plan for the summer and recruit students, remember last winter, we didn't know what was gonna happen in the summer. In fact, we didn't even know until April or May if anything was gonna be able to be done. So we, we kind of lost two years. Um, but in the prior, you know, most of a decade of running the program, um, we have uh, groups of students, um, they have to have a background in, in, in related areas, physics, astronomy, geology, natural environment, to be eligible. Um, they go through a series of workshops uh, on what our content is, what our messaging is. Um, and that's, that's another aspect of the whole work that we're doing is, is to try to change the way that science is presented to the public. So I've given talks on this and, and, and talked to lots of astronomy clubs and professional scientists that most of the time it's science communication is done as let me tell you about the science. Let me show you Saturn and tell you 10 great things about Saturn. That's great, but it doesn't change what somebody does. They'll have a great experience. They'll go, ooh and ah, 
And nothing sexier than seeing Saturn through a telescope. That's great. Connects with people. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Why? But is I haven't sexy? changed you. <laughs> oh, because nobody believes you can actually see it. The rings, I'm really seeing the rings. Everybody walks around to look at the telescope to see if you're showing them a picture. They don't believe it's real. It's really like wow. the most engaging thing you can show people. <laughs> so, and whatever object, but I mean, that's sort of the most famous. And my point is, yes, you can show people things. You can tell people things. But... How do you structure what you're doing? It's not just bring people up here to the White Mountains and take them on a hike and say, let me show you, you know, we have deciduous trees up to this altitude, then the conifers take over, and then the Krumholz, and then it's the Alpine zone. The Alpine zone is very critical. Yada, yada. You can tell people about that. But it's like, now you need to go home and realize that all the plant life that's around your house is a critical part of this and you need to take care of it. Mm -hmm. And you need to get rid of your lawn and put in wildflowers because no species actually lives in a lawn and wildflowers will bring back the insects and the birds. Oh, it's also, it's very pretty. You don't have to mow it or water it. Isn't that great? You, you need to build that messaging, some form of messaging, whatever it is, whether it's on your plant life or it's on your lighting or it's on some. So we have to train people how to take the technical content that they know or are expert in. Some of them are experts in birds. Some people are experts in rocks. Some people do astronomy and say, okay, how do we convert that into actually something that's engaging with your audience? So I recommend, uh, and you might want to look into the programs that are run by the Allen Alda Center for Science Communication at, at Stony Brook. So they were partnered in one of one of our grant cycles. And boy, did we learn a lot from working with them and understanding how do you do science communication? How do you really do science communication? Um, and that's you know, a big part of, of what we do. So everybody who, who participate, well, every, everybody who's delivering programs for us, whether it's myself, the students who work with me, um, AMC guide staff, hut crews, we explain to them, say, okay, you're in the position to work with the public to make a difference. Just telling them facts doesn't do it. Let me show you, let me show you these connections that take this content to behavior changes. This is what we want you to do, okay? So within the specifics of what I, what I and my students are doing is, They'll have telescopes set up every day. So if it's a clear day, they have telescopes that show the sun. We have telescopes where you can look at the sun safely. You can see the sun's atmosphere. You can see prominences, the kinds of things people have only seen pictures of. So they think that's really cool. And you say, oh, now let, you know, let me connect you with all of these things that make you know, life, life here unique because of these particular characteristics. Oh, by the way, you know, if there's a flare, we actually reroute the power grid and change your cell service and shut down satellites. You don't know about all this stuff that happens, but there's all this work that's going on. We're so connected to that environment. So, I mean, you can tell all sorts of stories and connections with people. And so we provide that range of training um, to, as I said, you know, hut crews, guides, the students who work with us. Um, and then they'll have telescopes set up during the day, telescopes set up at night. We have inflatable planetarium domes. So even whether the weather's permitting or you're working with school kids or I'm at the Mount Washington Hotel, we'll set it up, get groups in there 
And there's a great place to do dark sky stuff because it's dark and they see a sky up there, which, as you know, nobody really gets to see because most of the people who are up here on vacation come up from Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Hartford, Springfield. They don't see stars. They see this is what it is. And then there's a tremendous demonstration. I don't know if you've seen this, but if you take a mag light, one of those little single bulb flashlights, take, take the lens off of it and stand it up. It behaves like an unshielded streetlight. If beneath it, you put a little toy car and a little toy person, nobody can see them because of the glare. Then you put, and the stars are gone in the planetarium. Put a little cap over the light, and all of a sudden you see the accident that now gets prevented because the light is shielded and the stars come back. Everybody gets it immediately. Oh, unshielded lighting is bad. Oh, by the way, we can turn this down, make it half as bright or a third as bright because all the lights are actually going on the ground. Oh, now it's safe. This little doll here isn't going to get hit by the car. The stars are back. So we're able to build that into our programming. So again, we, we have all of these different activities. All of them have an environmental and dark sky message in there. We train everybody who's involved in the program to do those demonstrations and activities. I'm doing a workshop on dark skies on Saturday for all the AMC volunteers. There are several hundred who do you know, who deliver a lot of programs. I'm going to show them all this. Um, out um, about light pollution and light pollution effects, I'd be happy to send you the PDF of this. You can post it up to folks if you like. Um, so very simple kind of thing that guides people into doing this without having to do the level of study that you and I have done of it. Here are the key points you need to bring across. So you often, you often reference humankind's place in the cosmos and how a view of the night sky is a giant reminder of that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about your use of this concept in your education and why it's important? Sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll just run, run through some aspects that, that we bring. Uh, in fact, I have a whole talk about this, um, about life in the universe and our place in it. Um, and by the way, all of this, uh, pe people should go to our website, which is mountainsofstars.org. Uh, there's a huge public facing side of it where you can see all of our presentations, all of our workshops. We have a library of TED Talks, podcasts. There's links to all sorts of dark sky information there. So, so folks should take advantage of that. And in fact, the talk I'm about to describe to you is there. They can look at the slides or they can watch a, um, a webinar version of it. But um, if you look at the cosmic history, so from the Big Bang, which generated all, basically only hydrogen and helium, that stars then convert those into all the other elements that lead to everything in the universe. But that the two most common elements that stars make beyond helium are carbon and oxygen. That carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen make sugar, and that all life on the planet is based on sugar. Everything on the planet is based on sugar. Everything either eats it or makes it. Plants and bacteria make it. Everything else eats it. So the reason you have energy, the reason you're awake, the reason you can see me is because you ate and that and it's sugars. Mm -hmm. But the reason that you have organic chemistry, the reason you have carbon chemistry, the reason that sugar is fundamental to everything is because stars make carbon and oxygen. And all the stars mm -hmm. in the universe are making carbon and oxygen. 
The next most common things the stars make are magnesium, silicon, and iron, which combined with oxygen makes all the rock. So you're gonna find rocky planets and carbon chemistry everywhere in the universe. So if you start thinking about that, you go, the basic functions that are gonna make life happen are spread throughout the entire universe. There are clouds of carbon compounds all over the place. You go out and you look at that dark band in the Milky Way, that's not an absence of stars. That's big clouds of organic material waiting to be life things. There are amino acids up in the, up there. So life itself is probably likely now hmm. to make human life is a whole other game because you need just the right balance of everything. You need to wipe life out on the planet five times over from there were five major extinctions to wow. make it possible for mammals to actually be running things. We <laughs> needed the moon, which by the way, we shouldn't have. Little rocky planets don't have huge moons. We have a huge moon. It creates the tides, which was a major factor in getting life out of the water and onto land. You know, all these factors that made human life possible made all the life that's here possible. So we are probably unique because of all these weird things that happened that made our particular flavor of life possible. But you can right. say that for every other kind of life. Moose, everybody loves moose, especially if you're up in New Hampshire and Maine, everybody wants to see a moose. A moose is just as unique as we are. They're a large mammal. They're only here because the dinosaurs had a bad day. If the dinosaurs hadn't had a bad day, you wouldn't have large <laughs> mammals. So the same processes that made us possible made moose possible. So all we look around and go, well, we're the most important thing in the universe because we're the only thing that looks like us. Moose can make the same claim. And therefore, we're actually well, all equal. Right? I, we're actually equal I wholeheartedly agree with that. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So you can, so when you look up and you, even if you just get somebody outside and just have a green pointer and you're pointing things out, sun temperature, it's not too hot and cool. By the way, there are, you know, half a trillion stars in our galaxy and that's just one of a trillion galaxies. Oh, you see a little blurry thing over there? That's the next nearest galaxy. It took 2.8 million years for the light to reach us. Start understanding the scales. Start realizing which processes are common. There's probably life out there, carbon life. It doesn't look like us because nothing else on this planet looks like us. There are 120,000 different kinds of flies. 120,000 different kinds of flies alone on this planet. Why, if you went to another planet, would you expect to see something that looks like us? So start recognizing how everything here is equal because you understand the cosmic history. And that's what we talk about, environmental awareness from a cosmic perspective. To, to be able to understand how all of this works, you start realizing it's pretty lucky that human beings exist, but it's also pretty lucky that maple trees exist and pretty lucky that rainbow trout exist and pretty, right? Just go down the list, right? So, so th those are examples of, of how we pull these things together and how we use astronomy experiences understand this big picture that, you know, the universe was not built for people. Okay. Get it. it you know, and, and, and that, that's a big part of this, this aspect of let's treat everything well because we're all equals. Yeah. I, I love how you paint a picture of the fragility 
and luck that we all have to be having this human experience that's also in the same um, experience as all of these other beautiful animals. And you're right. I, I always include in my presentations very beautiful, adorable animal photography because people love animals. And uh -huh. it's and, and also, uh, I don't know much about moose, but I dare to say that they have intelligence I do not have. Um, I That's certainly correct. don't forage and feed myself every day and you know i i i don't i have a pantry i just go to the pantry <laughs> i would say that right. that takes a lot less intelligence than whatever animal intelligence the the moose has so um i i think that's really interesting how you kind of put that um the all animals sort of and and plants all living things as this sort of equal life that emerged and how lucky we are so that that's really interesting now you also have tried to put astronomy in the hands of thousands of people you were the co-founder of galileo scope which provided high quality low-cost telescopes for science education so uh that's that's such a beautiful impact to have in the world so can you talk about that work and, and, and what you saw come of it? Sure. Um, Galileo Scope started as one of what we'll call the cornerstone projects of the 2009 International Year of Astronomy. So uh, each year the UN declares that it's the International Year of something. Somebody brings to them the idea, this, this is a major uh, anniversary of something, it should be an international year as a way to celebrate that. So a uh, famous thing was 1956 was the International Geophysical Year, and that launched all, all sorts of things that became, you know, the space program and satellites and everything because the International Geophysical Year. Well, 2009 was the 400th anniversary of Galileo's major discoveries. And so um, a number of scientists in Italy proposed that it should be the International Year of Astronomy, and that was declared. <laughs> and so groups got together to say, okay, what should we do? And they came up with a list of activities. And one of which uh, was, well, we want people to look at the sky, they should have a telescope. So we're gonna create the Galileo Scope program. Um, and uh, I happened to be at a conference and bumped into some of the people who were involved in this. And I, I have a, a different kind of background. I, I spent 15 years in industry before I became a faculty member. I've launched companies. I did a lot of economic development. And in fact, when I became a faculty member, it was actually to start the country's first undergraduate science and technology entrepreneurship program to teach science students how to have careers and be in business. Mm -hmm. And through that, I became with a lot of organizations where I was teaching. And so in talking to these folks, I said, well, I've already got, I know manufacturers and transportation companies, and I'm a designer. I can already engineer up what this thing can look like. Would you like some help? And would you like some help turned into a time job? I'm sure you're familiar with that kind of thing. Y that yes. <laughs> um, and so um, a number of us got together, I'll give you the short form. A number of us got together, designed up uh, you know, the, the physical characteristics we wanted. Uh, it had to be a kit, so people learned how it worked by putting it together. It had to be very inexpensive, 
because we're not just talking about Western Europe and the United States. You know, we've got lots right. of money, but if you're looking at South America, Africa, South Asia, um, it had to be very inexpensive and had to be able to be made in large quantities. Um, and the, the, these, these trolls start constraining the problem. There was a small company I had done some work with uh, in Racine, Wisconsin, that had just set up um, manufacturing partnerships in China, which, by the way, is where all optics are made. Basically, wow. all the commercial optics you get. You buy a pair of binoculars, the lenses were made in a four-block area. They make everything. They have a huge economy of scale. And we won't get into the politics of, of international trade, but they do a terrific job. They're very responsive. Um, our first buy was 60,000 units. They made 60,000 units in six weeks. It's unbelievable what they can do. Wow. Uh, but this company was very good. They were a tool and die group. They were able to make uh, all the molds for us um, and did a tremendous job on the detailed engineering and the production. We partnered with an intermodal transportation company that could pick up the goods and, and set up warehouses around the world. Um, and we started making Galileo scopes. So Rick Feinberg and I ran that. I ran it, basically was running the company. He handled a lot of the, the customer interaction parts. Uh, we got a colleague of mine to create a website and an e-commerce site. Um, and we started making them and distributing them. For the international year, a number of countries or a number of orga major organizations, companies bought large batches. A huge batch went to Brazil. A huge batch went to Norway. Um, uh, they went all over. 2015 was the International Year of Light. So we yes. continued this through the International Year of Light in 2015. Uh, both in 09 and 15, there was a major uh, sponsor who bought a whole bunch that could go out to teachers. So teachers only had to pay the shipping. So we sent tens of thousands out to teachers across the United States. Uh, there was another foundation on the West Coast that bought a batch that went through the Astronomical Society of the Pacific to science teachers in California. So we, we ran it through there. Um, but Rick and I also knew that, you know, one product companies don't survive. It's got to be, we, we can't afford to advertise, right? We can't sell them cheaply and advertise. If we sell them for $100 a piece, we can make enough money that we can buy ads in Scientific American and the Wall Street Journal and sell lots of them. But then, no, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to get this out to people who can't afford a telescope. Um, so uh, we, we approached a number of manufacturers. One was Explore Scientific, uh, run by mm -hmm. Scott Roberts. And he said, yeah, we'll take it over. So um, a little over two years ago, we arranged to transfer the project to them. And they are now making and distributing. Uh, Rick and I are still involved with the education community and promoting it and getting it out there and handling a bunch of the orders. Um, but, but they being you know, a manufacturer and distributor of many products, it's easy for them to promote it because they're already advertising. You can advertise your products and just throw this one in at no cost and make it visible to people. Um, mm -hmm. They are already making lots and lots of products. So they don't have to wait till they can fill a whole container to economically move them. They can do that. So it makes much more sense for that. So it continues today. Um, we're at about 270,000 of them in 110 or 120 countries. Um, wow. And we're happy to see it continue. So to go along with it, um, if you go to the Galileo Scope website, which is galileoscope.org, we also created educational materials, observing guides, instructions in dozens of languages, graphic illustrations. Um, we did a big promo uh, and effort for the 2017 total eclipse. 
We uh, were able to get solar filters so you could use them safely on the sun. All the information observing the sun is there. We've got the eclipse coming up in 2024. I'm sure we'll find a way to do another program for the 2024 eclipse. Um, so, you know, it's been an important part of, of, of doing um, outreach is to give people a telescope. It's good quality, but uh, uh, we looked at sales of pretty much every inexpensive telescope. And you can get good and you can get cheap, but you can't get good and cheap. Uh, and the way we could do that was we, you know, we weren't paying ourselves. In fact, we financed the company ourselves. Rick and I each put in a lot of money uh, to make it happen. You know, we eventually were able to slowly recoup it. Um, but, you know, if a major manufacturer did this, they'd be marking it up to make the turn a profit. We were selling at cost. Right. And right. that's what made it possible to get this out there and give it a life. You know, it, it makes me think maybe we should make 2024 the International Year of Natural Darkness to go along with the eclipse. Because um, it's funny, uh, you know, That's I see all brilliant. these. <laughs> well, you made me think of it just now. Because, you know, I when you said International Year of Light, I almost had like a brace myself. Because I, I at the time, I remember when that happened and it, I was like, ooh, exciting. And actually, it wasn't until 2016 that I fashioned the words starving for darkness together, um, which became a mm -hmm. framework for my life that taught me back. So I'm so thankful for those words. Um, but in 2015, that that person, Jane, was not aware of any of this work. And so perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I see a lot of conferences naming their their conferences about light. And it's like, light is beautiful. And I'm like, well, light in balance is beautiful not the way that we're doing it right. right now. So I feel like we mm -hmm. need to almost counterbalance 2015 with um, the International Year of Natural Darkness. Um, and actually, I do want to bring up a quote that I read this week, which is from Prince William. And he said, we need some of the world's greatest brains and minds fixed on trying to repair this planet, not trying to find the next place to go and live. Do you have any thoughts about our expeditions out to Mars? Because I, I don't think it's a completely cut and dry, you know, I, I don't think it's completely, completely cut and dry. I don't think they're also mutually exclusive. But for me, it's a little bit offensive that we are pursuing space when we are not really taking care of our home. So that's my perspective. What are your thoughts? I, I, I think there's I think there's room for all of it. I think the exploring and the interaction with space is also important. So um, I'm of the generation, uh, I got to see Shepard go up, you know, and I was 12 when we landed on the moon. Um, and that was absolutely fabulous. And, and mm. you know, interestingly, when you talk about environmental issues and things, I, I really believe that July 20th, 1969 was unique. It's the one day when everybody on the entire planet was on the same side. <laughs> I can't think there's another time in human history where everybody was glued to watching something and was rooting for it. That's pretty special, right? So yeah. these connections are actually important. And the connections in space. If we hadn't gone up to space, nobody would have been, look, been looking back at the planet. I mean, the, the Earth rising over the moon from Apollo 8 is one of the most powerful images ever created. Mm -hmm. So if we didn't have a moon program, you wouldn't have that. So I, I, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. Now, mm -hmm. um, there is the aspect of there's just so many, so much resources we have, whether it's physical, human, 
economic. And there are lots of things to be worked on. It's a huge number of different things to be worked on. Um, and so, yeah, there are always going to be value judgments as to where those resources go. And that's true for each of us as an individual. There, there are areas, you know, you're obviously very environmentally aware, and we can probably go down a list of things that you do to be good to the environment. And if we were honest and sitting someplace with something old French and red and having a conversation, we could probably find an equal long list of things that you're doing that are not environmentally friendly. Absolutely. Right? I feel guilt all and the so, time for that. Yeah, totally. Right. So, so there are going to be trade-offs in everything. Um, and um, to that, I recommend um, a couple of books. Um, Daniel Goleman, the guy who wrote Emotional Intelligence, has written a whole bunch of very famous books, wrote one called Ecological Intelligence. And he talks about everything you look at, nothing is perfectly green, right? Everything has an impact and you want to minimize that impact, but you have to look at the entire life cycle of a product. So for example, and this is sort of off topic, but it's on topic, uh, electric cars are not green. Hmm. Electric cars are not green because you have to make batteries and you have to make electronics. Hmm. And those things are extremely ungreen in production and recycling powered cars are almost entirely recycled. Whereas electric cars, the batteries are hard to recycle or impossible to recycle. And you have to look at what's the source of the electricity if you have a plug-in, right? So you, you have to look at the entire life cycle of everything. Um, I also recommend the books by a guy named Vaclav Smil, S-M-I-L, who's done a, a whole series of books on growth and energy and the environment. Uh, those are all linked on our website, by the way, if you go to the mm. books and references thing, they're linked right there to the source of those books. But you know, th this is what gets you into all of this, is starting to have this bigger picture understanding of what impacts really are and, how to, you know, and, and that there are trade-offs. And there's an argument, Jacques Cousteau made the argument, you know, look at all the oceans and we haven't explored much of that. We don't even know what's happening down there. That's true. Okay. So, a choice. The ocean. You, you you can't compete those two things, right? They're all of these things are valuable. Each of them takes resources. Each of them has an impact. And luckily, you know, there are enough interested parties that we're making efforts in all these directions, right? Um, I don't think you'd really want to sacrifice a whole bunch and go, we're going to do the oceans and nothing else. I don't think that would be a good answer either. So I mm -hmm. think we need to look, you know, to accept the fact that there are trade-offs, but we work in all these, in all these different areas. Um, and, you know, there are a variety of, uh, uh, of other aspects here. So I don't know if you're familiar with these large uh, groups of satellites that are being launched to deliver internet. Oh, well, absolutely. And Let I, me just I, mention, I'm on the... You're yeah, a and I've, major I've been on the working commission to the um, uh, well, you serve on the American Astronomical Society's Light Pollution, Radio Interference, and Space Debris Committee. Uh, and you also were a major contributor to SATCON 2. Here's my cat, Ferdinand, for anyone watching. He's hey, right Ferdinand. in the shot. Of course. <laughs> um, hey, Ferdinand. Yeah, so um, we've just been so working on major aspects of these large constellations of internet satellites. And again, these are the kinds of things where there are trade-offs. 
Um, so I live in rural New Hampshire. I'm actually at my brother and sister-in-law's house because they happen to have just amazingly a tiny little line of sight from their house to Cannon Mountains. So they can get over the air internet. So the internet here is decent. At my house, I have a satellite link because that's all I can get. There's no cable, mm. there's no fiber available where I live. So we, and COVID certainly pointed out how important internet is now to doing education and business and so on. But what happens when you launch 20, 30, 40,000 satellites, all at roughly the same altitude, creating a space traffic issue? There are electromagnetic issues with all the radio connections that have to be done. And you see all these satellites going over at dusk and dawn, which frankly is a major issue for research astronomy. Now, again, mm. there are trade-offs. Are you willing to sacrifice certain aspects of research astronomy in exchange for having internet service in different places? I'm not gonna you know, voice any opinions, but these are the trade-offs that have to be made, right? Well, one and argument, I did sit on a recent webinar on this exact topic, and one argument is to say that that's not the only way you can get internet. Um, right. So there are other so, ways so to that's do why it. This, right. So that's why this becomes actually an economic development issue. And I sit on the economic development group for Northern New Hampshire. And the preferential way to do things is with fiber because it's also weather resistant. If you have a satellite dish, like even our um, geosync satellite dish, if it snows, I have to go brush it off, right? So if everybody has these things in a thunderstorm, it doesn't work in snow, it doesn't work, but fiber works all the time. But what we have to do is get economic development groups to say, we're gonna make sure fiber goes in because if you had fiber everywhere, the satellites wouldn't fly because they'd be uneconomical because you'd have fiber everywhere. So you have to look at these trade-offs and you say, okay, well, what's the cost of putting in fiber? Who's gonna pay for that? How's that gonna happen? As opposed to this commercial party that is gonna provide the service and foot the bill for flying this, right? Nobody's paying SpaceX to do this. They're doing it on their nickel, then selling the service. How is this gonna play? So the proposed infrastructure bill in Congress includes money for fiber and ground-based internet, the, the, these are these kinds of trade-offs and why these problems are not easy to solve. And you have to work all aspects of it. And to go back to light pollution, which is where we started an hour or so ago, you have the same issue. What infrastructure money is putting put out? How is that gonna be used for a power grid? How is that power grid gonna connect to lighting? J just think of the amount of power grid we might not need if you eliminated the lighting that's doing harm. Right. Mm -hmm. So these things all play together. But you have to accept those trade offs. Right. If you're going to have fiber everywhere, somebody's got to pull that cable. You got to dig trenches someplace. You got to put towers up someplace. All right. You're going to have these things. Um, so we have over the air Internet. This house, but that's a tower. So it's not a net anymore. OK, are we going to have, you know, things sticking up in, in wilderness areas? in order to avoid having satellites flying overhead, right? How, how do you make those trades? And, th and those are real trades. 
I don't know what it is, but my cat Ferdinand loves you, Doug, because he's never been more active on a podcast. So right now, well, he's I'm a cat person, his... so that's great. He's rubbing his cheek on the screen, so he loves you. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> um, I I think that the satellite issue is emerging. I'm I'm worried, to be honest. Um, I'm glad to see that there's a voice like yours on a committee working to try and at least educate and raise awareness about potential conflicts that could be in the future um, with these endeavors. And I think it's just something we have to kind of watch and be aware of as it's transpiring. I feel like I could talk to you all day because quite honestly, I did barely got to the questions I prepared for the show. So um, <laughs> please come back. Um, I guess I'll just ask you one final question, which is, why does night matter to you? Um, well, uh, firstly, we're, we're creatures of day and night, right? I mean, just naturally, we are, we're active in the day, we rest at night, and, um, you know, we need we need to connect with both of those, right? We we enjoy our daytime and we enjoy our nighttime, and you know, without both, with nighttime being removed from you, you're you're missing out on a big part of of you know human existence. I I I love that. It's a very uh, succinct way of putting it, and I agree. We're missing out on a whole part of our circadian rhythms, and um an experience that you cannot get in brightness. And I, I have uh, recently written that um, light draws the awareness outward and darkness draws the awareness inward. And I think that there's a real lack of inner reflection that's happening in our world. And with a little more darkness, we could gain a lot of perspective. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Please come back because I have more questions for you. Um, and yeah, it was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me here. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, I hope uh, all your viewers and listeners will check out our website. Uh, we do have a fundraiser constantly because we have to support all the students uh, who work with us. Uh, there's a GoFundMe right on the site. Uh, if folks would chip in something to that, that will help us do this because if we don't have our little army working on it, uh, there are just so many people we can talk to. And, you know, 67,000 people is a lot of people. I think that I and a group of students reaching 67,000 people is great. There's 330 million of them in this country alone and 7 billion on the planet. We have a long way to go to educate people to, to really make a difference. So every, every little bit helps. So we really appreciate that. It's great that you reached out to me. I'm so glad to be able to meet you and to speak with you. So thank you very much for the invitation. Well, thank you for using your voice to then empower new voices in the movement, because as you say, we absolutely need it. So anyone listening, if you want to get involved, if you want to donate to Doug's um, Mountains of Stars, um, please help us to bring this awareness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Psst. Psst. Hey, don't go anywhere yet, because we have some instructions for you. Michael and Greg from Get a Grip on Lighting. Yeah, we do the ads for Starving for Darkness. You got to go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Light made easy, Greg.
you've been rattled that off real well. Uh, there's a new line of exterior fixtures from Keystone that they have available, and they're going to continue to expand on it. And they're doing things right. And one of those that they're doing right is in their wall packs, they're making them full cut off. That's going to eliminate undesirable sky glow and glare. And that's what we all want. It looks nice. It fits the profile of a lot of your old nasty fixtures and has multiple wattages and kelvins that can cover you there. Get rid of those old nasties. Go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Thanks for listening to Starving for Darkness. Bye for now.